are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik. I'm so pleased that you could join me today, and we're going to get started for our Thursday question and answer time. Uh, Right now, it's Thursday, right about 12 noon here at my home on the West Coast of the United States. And if you can join me, I'm very pleased to have you here. One of the things I enjoy about our time is that we tend to have a global audience. And so we've got people from all over the place, many different countries, few different continents. And we're very pleased that you could join us. Our normal pattern for a questionnaire, for question and answer time on a Thursday is to take a lead question. Uh, That's what's on the headline. That's what's on the thumbnail that we have. And so we take a lead question. And from that lead question, we go ahead and we talk about um, that lead question. And then we take the questions that come in on the live chat. So if you can join us today, we're very pleased about that. And let me get into the lead question for today. Our lead question today comes from Grace, and she sent it via email. Grace asks this question, hi, my name is Grace, and I have a question. To what extent can a shepherd or leader interfere? And she puts quote marks in interfere. Can what extent can a shepherd or leader interfere in the lives of the sheep? Well, Grace, first of all, let me thank you for your question. And I want to say that I think that's a very good question to ask. But it's not an easy question to answer because a lot of it depends on what someone means by interfere. And I think you know this, you sense this, because you put interfere in quote marks, you know, you're kind of highlighting that phrase and that there's a little bit problematic with that thing. What exactly do we mean by interfere? Now, some of this depends on the context of your relationship with your pastor. Trust is earned over long periods of faithfulness. And again, I want to emphasize, not perfection. Friends, don't get in the trap of expecting perfection from your leaders, your elders, your pastors in the church. You shouldn't expect perfection, but you should expect faithfulness. And over long periods of faithfulness, it's right for the pastor to earn your trust. And look, I'm going to use the word pastor mostly, but you can interchange for their leader, the director of a ministry, perhaps, uh, elder, whatever a particular might be in your church, but I'll just in general use the term pastor. So if someone walks up to me and says, I'm a pastor, let me tell you what to do. And you have to obey my word because it's the word of the Lord. Well, obviously that's not going to go anywhere. And the same is true. If that person says to me that they're an apostle or a prophet, it's like, brother, I've got no relationship with you. I don't know you. You don't know me. And while I will not completely discount the idea that this could be God speaking to me, I'm going to take it under careful advisement. I'm not just going to immediately believe whatever you have to say. I'm going to test any prophecy. I'm going to judge any proposed word from the Lord. So that's someone that I would meet that would be pretty much a stranger to me. Now, if I'm fairly new to a church, and I don't have much familiarity with the pastor or with the church, that's going to affect how much I trust. 
how much trust I have in that pastor or elder, and how I might feel about what he would tell me to do. But look, if a man has been a godly pastor, I want to stress again, not perfect, but godly. Let's say he's been a godly pastor for 10 years in my life, and I've seen and received from his ministry week in and week out. Well, honestly, let's admit that gives a lot more weight to what he might say to me. Now, again, I know, Grace, this doesn't directly answer your question, how much can a pastor interfere in my life? But I just want to say that there is definitely a relational aspect to this. Now, let me bring in some scripture. There really is something to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Let me show you that passage. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where we see, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And I think we've got to admit that's a very strong statement, isn't it? Obey those who rule over you. Right there, uh, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is telling us that in some sense, not in every sense, but in some sense, uh, leaders in the church, pastors, leaders, they, they rule over the congregation. And there's some measure, again, this can be exaggerated, but the words are what they are there in Hebrews 13, verse 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. They watch out for your soul. So, especially if a man has a track record, hey, he, he's proven himself trustworthy. He relies on the word of God. He's genuinely watching out for my soul. Then there's a place there for what it says there in Hebrews 13, 17, to obey those who rule over you. And Grace, I'm going to say this in general. I think it applies to everybody. It certainly applies to me. We need people in our life to whom we will be accountable. We need people who, when they tell us, hey, you're wrong about that, then I'm going to listen to them carefully. I'm going to consider what they say, even if I hadn't thought that I was wrong before. However, I got to say that that's kind of the side on, okay, yes, the pastor does have some authority to interfere in your life, but this comes, and Grace, please don't lose me here. This comes with two big additional factors. So let me go over these two big additional factors. Number one, a pastor's true authority flows from God's word. If a pastor tells you what to do, if he interferes in your life, then there must be a firm biblical basis for it. Now, Grace, as a pastor, I've dealt with people who are in the sin of adultery, and I've had them respond to me, either in their words or in their attitude, who are you to interfere in my life? Well, listen, I mean, the, the answer to that question is, I'm your pastor. And, and you're in clear sin biblically. You're making excuses for your adultery. You're, you're, you're trying to say it's okay. You're trying to say God understands or there's extenuating circumstances. But listen, dear friend, you're in sin and you need to repent of this. And, and again, I, I've had people respond to me either with their words or in their attitude. They say, you shouldn't be interfering in my life. 
You see, the answer to the question is simply, I'm nobody, but God's word is true. Your adultery is sin, and I'm not going to hesitate to confront you with it and to tell you to repent. So am I, as a pastor in those situations, am I interfering in their life? Of course I am. Now, here's the problem, is that God's word is not as clear on everything as it is on something like adultery. For example, the Bible tells us to spend our money wisely, to steward it for God's glory. I think everybody listening to this would agree on that. So therefore, does the pastor have the right to tell me, don't buy that car? Does the pastor have the right to carry out church discipline if I do go ahead and buy that car? The Bible also gives us general commands to walk in wisdom and to glorify the Lord. Does the pastor have the right to tell me, don't go to that college? Does he have the right to carry out church discipline against me if I do go to that college? Now, I think that those are pretty clear examples of overstepping bounds. I don't think it's the pastor's place to tell you what kind of car to buy. I don't even think necessarily it's the pastor's place to tell you what specific college to go to. Now, I do think the pastor has the right to say something like this. Hey, Grace, the Bible says that you should steward your money wisely. Please remember that when you go car shopping. But then... I think the pastor should leave it at that and genuinely leave it there. I believe that for a pastor to command such things is overstepping the authority that God has given to them. And it is what Peter calls lording it over God's people, which pastors are strictly commanded not to do. Let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, where we read this. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Here, you can see that Peter certainly understood that there was the potential for Christian pastors to lord it over their congregations. And even though there was this potential, they must not do it. And when pastors act as lords over God's people, they are in error. Again, now I can see the person whom I would confront over adultery saying, hey, you're lording over me. And of course, that's nonsense. Yet there are definite ways that pastors can lord it over their people. And God does not recognize the pastor's authority to do such things. So, I, I guess, Grace, the first part of the answer is simply that there has to be a clear biblical thing. And some things are clear biblically, as the example I use, such as adultery. Uh, but there are other things that are not so clear. All right, now, here's a second thing to look at here. The second principle is this. Grace, and I say this to everybody, no person has dominion over your faith. What do I mean by that? Well, let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers for your joy. For by faith 
you stand. I find this fascinating because clearly there's other places in Paul's writing to the Corinthians where he really does assert his apostolic authority. But even with him asserting his apostolic authority, Paul was careful to point out that he was no one's Lord in the church, even though he was an apostle. It's been said, I can't remember where I came across this. Maybe it was Matthew Poole. Maybe it was Adam Clark. But it's been said that God reserves three things to himself. First, to make something out of nothing. That's something only God can do. Second, to know future events. That's only something God can do. And third, to have dominion over men's consciences. Friends, it's kind of sad, but there are far too many that are entirely willing to take dominion over other believers in a manner that Paul, the apostle, would not. Don't forget those words there, not that we have dominion over your faith. And so, friends, we should not allow any, even godly leader, and there are some godly leaders who deserve our respect, who deserve our attention, but even they do not have dominion over our faith. Let me communicate to you something else here from Adam Clark in his comment on this passage. You can find this on my commentary of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where it's, he says this, Adam Clark, the sacred writings and they alone contain what is necessary to faith and practice, and that no man, number of men, society, church, council, presbytery, consistory, or conclave has dominion over any man's faith. The word of God alone is his rule, and to its author, he is to give account of the use that he's made use of it. Now, look, I I know that there's some people who would look at that and say, oh, how radically individualistic that is. But friends, I got to say, there is something radically individualistic. Well, no, let me take that back. Not radically individualistic, but let's say definitely individualistic about the believer's relationship with God. We have relationship with God as individuals. Yes, there is a community we're a part of. Yes, we need to be mindful of that community. But brothers and sisters, each individual soul will have to give account to God. And for that reason, no one should have dominion over anyone else's faith. Now, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul said, instead of taking dominion, that they should be fellow workers for your joy. Instead of seeing himself as some kind of Lord over the Corinthian churches, Paul gave a great description of what ministers should be, fellow workers. Leaders among Christians should work alongside their people, and they should do it to increase their joy. So look, we should respect and value pastors, leaders, elders, especially those who have shown themselves to be godly servants. Again, we're not talking about perfection. We're just talking about godliness. But that doesn't mean that those people have dominion over our faith. So that's a long way to come to a simple sentence. Grace, no, the pastor should not run your life. It's true. 
The pastor has the right, even the responsibility to bring the truth of God's word to your life, but the pastor shouldn't interfere except where God's word is really clear and the issue is plain. I hope that's helpful for you, Grace. So pleased that you asked the question. Let me get into the questions now that have come in on our live chat. A question from Jesse who asks, Why will the New Jerusalem need walls and a gate? Is it simply to have a place to put the precious jewels? Well, Jesse, um, I don't think it's that. I don't think that uh, the New Jerusalem needs uh, walls for the sake of attackers. Listen, God can rebuke them with just a word so that there's no real um, uh, threat from it there. Jesse, I think it's just important to understand that uh, to the audience that first read the book of Revelation, you're talking about first century people, that no proper city would be without walls and a gate. That was just normal for a proper city for their defense. It meant that it couldn't be conquered. It it meant that it was um, unattackable or uh, it couldn't be attacked successfully. No proper city lacked walls and gates. And if anything, The New Jerusalem is a proper city. Now, I know that in the modern world, really pretty much since the uh, invention of and the implementation of gunpowder into modern warfare, it really hasn't been the same. Now, cities don't need walls to protect themselves. Walls and gates around a city are pretty much useless. But until the more modern inventions and implementations of gunpowder, every proper city had walls. Every proper city had gates. It was just part of the defense of the city. So uh, I think that God wants to show us that the New Jerusalem is indeed a proper city. It really belongs. It's an important city. And as such, it has walls and gates. Tommy asks this question. Do we sin when we worry? I'm 60 years old. And I've been diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. I've been a closet Christian all my adult life, and I'm scared I'm not going to heaven. Will you please pray for me? All right, Tommy, I'm going to pray for you right now. And if you're part of our listening audience, I hope that you'll join me in prayer. Or if you're listening to this later, uh, join me and pray for Tommy, who has lung cancer. Father in heaven, we pray for Tommy. Lord, we pray uh, that you would help him with this terrible diagnosis he has of lung cancer. We know that you are a God who heals. We know that you have the full ability to heal, sometimes through medical intervention and sometimes just through a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. But yet, Lord, we also know that the ultimate healing for every one of us, body, soul, and spirit, is found in the resurrection of our body. And I pray, God, that you would give Tommy a genuine assurance of his salvation. Lord, if he's not right with you by faith in Jesus Christ, uh, by trusting in who Jesus is and what Jesus did to save him, 
especially in the work Jesus did at the cross to pay for our sins and in his resurrection to triumph over death. Lord, if Tommy hasn't put his trust in Jesus that way, I pray that you would lead him to do so and that you would give him a genuine assurance of his salvation. Lord, bless Tommy and show your goodness to him in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Tommy, regarding your question, is it a sin to worry? Well, Tommy, I would just put it this way. It certainly can be a sin to worry. I I don't know if every instance that we would call worry is a sin. There are times when we have legitimate concerns, and it's not so much worry, it's prudence. It's just saying, hey, something could go wrong here. I want to do everything I can. But, But then there are certainly other situations where our worry, our anxiety is a sin. We're choosing not to look at God's promises. We're choosing not to look at God's assurance that he would be with us in such things. And so, Tommy, I can't say specifically whether or not your instance of worry is sin, but I would just say, bring it before God. You know, there's a beautiful prayer in Psalm 139 that has suited me very well throughout life. Here it is from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked, or some translations say anxious way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Tommy, that's my prayer for you, that God would give you just that sort of uh, place that if there is a sinful worry in your life, God would help you to see it and that you'd confess that sin before the Lord and find forgiveness in the generous mercy of God. Blessings to you, Tommy. Let me go to the next question from Cheryl Ann, who asks, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, what is meant by the pride of life? 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Well, Cheryl Ann, I think you're asking a very good question there. What is the pride of life as it's used there in that verse? And what I'm going to do is take a quick look to my commentary because I do have a verse-by-verse commentary on the entire Bible. Uh, and I just, I don't know if I say anything about specifically what the pride of life is here, but I just want to take a look at it here. Um, I don't know if I define what the pride of life is. Um, other than just to say that it is pride. I don't know if there's a difference between the pride of life and any other kind of pride. It's very interesting when John describes those things in verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Enlisting those aspects of the world's influence against believers. John may have had in mind the very first pursuit of what we might call worldliness or rebellion against God, and that was what Eve had in the Garden of Eden. You know, uh, Genesis chapter 3 says that when she looked upon the fruit, she saw that it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. It, It also says that the fruit was pleasant to her eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. But then if you notice, it also says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 that she saw that it was desirable to make one wise, that in some way it would make her smart. And many Bible interpreters, I think rightly so, see this as an appeal to the pride of life. It's really just kind of any expression of pride. Um, 
We want to be noted. We want to be exalted. We want to be preferred above other people. And so I wouldn't make a big difference between general pride and the pride of life. I think it's just sort of a poetic and powerful way to describe the sin of pride. I hope that's helpful for you there, um, Cheryl Ann. Next question comes from Ken. He says, question, Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. Can these people, the ones that God gave up to a debased and reprobate mind, be saved? There's a teaching go around that they are unsavable. And if they are to be saved, can you please explain your answer in such a way that is hopefully comprehensive and explicit? I have a friend that is convinced otherwise, and another friend who's on the fence about it. Okay, Ken, let me read this passage here. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forevermore. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting. Well, Ken's question is, is that he's heard some people teach that the people described in those verses can't be saved. Well, Ken, I would just put it to you this way. It is true that they can't be saved if they remain in the place of having a debased mind, remain in the place of uh, rejecting and resisting God, if they remain in the uncleanness that verse 24 describes, if they continue to dishonor their bodies among themselves, as verse 24, if they continue to exchange the truth of the God and embrace a lie, if they continue to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. I mean, you could just go down the list, even when it describes there in verses 27 and 28, about homosexual behavior, if a person stays and remains in all those things and does not repent, well, yes, they can't be saved. Now, can a person who practices every one of those sins that's mentioned there in verses 24 through 28 of Romans chapter 1, can such a person be changed by the power of God, be forgiven their sins, have entrance into eternal life, and begin a walk of day by day becoming more and more set apart to God's purpose and obedience? Absolutely yes. So, I don't quite get what that person is asking or asserting in that question. It almost sounds like they're saying that repentance is impossible for those people. And friends, I don't believe in Repentance is impossible for anyone except for the person who won't repent. God can do amazing, transformative work in the lives of people. And so we shouldn't give up on people. We should pray for them and we should pray that God would bring the powerful changes to godliness and holiness in their lives. So I, I wouldn't say that it is impossible for such a person to repent and to be changed and to honor and serve God. 
But those people described in those verses, if they do not repent, then yes, absolutely, their salvation is in question. And let me tell you this, Ken. I use that phrasing very deliberately. Their salvation is in question. Because at the end of the day, I can't tell uh, by some, you know, uh, light that's on everybody's forehead, uh, that person who's truly saved and the person who's not truly saved. Uh, There's not a, a green light on the forehead of everybody who's truly saved and a red light on everybody who's uh, uh, not saved. It just doesn't work like that. Now, we can discern, we can judge, we can look by what is there in the outward appearance, but ultimately God only knows. But God declares to us by general principle in and through his word uh, how we should understand these things. So I, I hope that's helpful for you there, Ken. I would not question God's ability to lead any one of those people to true repentance. Okay, hope that's helpful there. Uh, Brianna asks this question. We're all called to be disciples. How do you minister to people that do not believe or are of a different faith without shoving the Bible down their throat? Well, Brianna, okay, a couple things. First of all, I just need you to understand that you may be accused of shoving the Bible down somebody's throat without doing it at all. Sometimes people come under great conviction from the Holy Spirit. And as part of that conviction of the Holy Spirit, they start blaming other people for making them feel guilty. And really that person did nothing to make them feel guilty. All right, I heard a story from a preacher once, and it doesn't matter who the preacher was, and I'll be honest, I don't even know if the story was true, but this was a reliable person I heard it from, so I assumed that it was true. They heard a story about somebody that they used to play golf with, and this person relayed the story that uh, this man saw another person coming in from the golf course after finishing a round of golf, and he was very, very angry. And he asked the man, well, why are you so angry? You just finished a round of golf. And he said, you'll never believe Billy Graham was in my foursome. Hey, that's Billy Graham right over my shoulder there. Anyway, he said, Billy Graham was in my foursome playing golf. And he goes, and you wouldn't believe it, for 18 holes, Billy Graham was shoving the gospel down my throat. He just wouldn't let up. Well, his friend, who was a believer, was kind of surprised by this because he didn't think that Billy Graham would be so rude as to just kind of nonstop evangelize. And so he asked the guy, wow, I'm surprised. Can you tell me what was it that Billy Graham said to you that was so offensive. And then the man who was angry was at least honest enough to stop and think a moment. And he said, well, he actually didn't say anything. I just felt really bad throughout the whole round. Now, you see, that's just an illustration. It's a story. But it's an illustration, I think, of something that's true. That sometimes people will accuse a believer of shoving religion or faith or the Bible down someone's throat when the accusation isn't true at all. Okay, so that's one thing to remember, Brianna. Second thing I would say is, look, just talk naturally about the Bible and naturally about what God is doing in your life. Uh, Just last night, I taught at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, at their midweek service, and I preached a sermon through 1 
Chronicles chapter 16, most of that chapter is a beautiful psalm of thanksgiving from David. And uh, in part of that psalm of thanksgiving, David says that we should talk of all God's wondrous works. And that's what I would just say, Brianna. Just talk about what God's doing. Talk about what God's doing in your life. You know, one of the big mistakes we make is that we think that we can only talk about what God's doing in our life with people who already believe. You know, it's totally okay for you to talk about what God's doing in your life with people who don't believe. And maybe that'll make them curious. Again, you're not telling them they have to believe anything. You're just saying, man, let me tell you how God answered that prayer. Man, let me tell you how God really came through. Man, let me tell you how God blessed me. And on and on in those things. So I think that that's a very effective way to just simply talk about what God is doing in our life. And then I'll give you a third way. First of all, don't believe every accusation of shoving religion down somebody's throat. Number two, talk about what God's doing in your life in a very natural way. And then number three, it's fine to speak the words of Scripture without necessarily quoting chapter and verse. Uh, Just for example, and this is just kind of a simple example, easy at hand. uh, It's pretty natural to say, um, hey, you know what? I just believe that God loves the world and that he gave Jesus Christ to save the world. Now, what I'm doing there is I'm paraphrasing some of the thoughts from John chapter 3, verse 16. But I don't have to quote the exact verse and give the reference to let people know I'm bringing God's word into the conversation. That's a very natural way to do it. So, Brianna, those three ways I hope are helpful to you. Let me take a little drink of water and head on to the next question from Adonis. Adonis asks, what verses would you use to prove to Judaists that some prophecies are partially fulfilled in the near term and also fully fulfilled later. They miss Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 and 9, 6 because of this. Well, Adonis, one of the ones that comes to my mind immediately is in Isaiah chapter 61. And what's so interesting about that is that Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 61 very directly towards the beginning of his ministry at the synagogue in Nazareth. Uh, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to to preach freedom to uh, the, the captives, on and on, and I'm paraphrasing right there. But what's interesting is Jesus stopped in his reading right before talking about the great and terrible day of the Lord, because that belongs to the second coming of Jesus not to the first coming of Jesus. So that's one that just kind of comes to my mind immediately about another example. And the ones you give are good examples. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, uh, 9, chapter 6. Um, Those are just examples of prophecies that have a near fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. Uh, That's just some of what comes to mind, uh, Adonis. I hope that's helpful to you. Um, Here's a special question from Debbie from the Enduring Word Facebook page, he asked this. During the tribulation, if someone has already received the mark of the beast and then truly repent, will they be able to be saved? Okay, Debbie, um, I'm going to give you an answer that I'm not 100% 
convinced of. Because I think there's a little bit of, um, if I could use the word, contradictory evidence here for an answer to that question. On the one hand, it says in the book of Revelation, anybody who has the mark uh, won't be saved. It says that. But at the same time, the Bible seems to indicate that there's one in unforgivable sin, and that's the sin of a hardened rejection of Jesus Christ. So, Debbie, I believe, I think that if a someone, and I'm going to use your phrasing, you said if someone has already received the mark of the beast and then truly repent, will they be able to be saved? I would say using that phrasing, truly repent, then I would say yes. And I would say that maybe, I'm just saying maybe, I don't know, but maybe the mark of their genuine repentance would be that they lay down their life um, in sacrifice as martyrs during the tribulation. I think that that's definitely a possibility. All right, let me go on to the next question here. Hey, before I get to the next question, let me just say, um, I don't know, I don't think I'm going to be able to do the question and answer live next week. I'm going to have a fill-in for me. Um, explain to you, I'm going to be in Brazil this Friday evening, tomorrow evening. We're heading out to Brazil, and I have no idea what the internet access is going to be like, where I'm going to be at. So I can't say with any confidence that I'll be able to do the Q&A. Um, if for some reason we were there and the internet was amazing, then I'll go ahead and do it, but I don't think that's going to be the case. So uh, we've scheduled a couple fill-ins because the next two Thursdays I'll be in, but we will have the question and answer just as always. It's just I'm going to have one of my good friends host it instead of myself. Please join it for that. And who knows, maybe I'll be there next week. Maybe I'll be able to tune in from Brazil. I just don't know, and I, I wouldn't count. I want to make provision in case that's not possible. Hey, and I'll say one more thing. Uh, just a couple days ago on Monday, we did a YouTube live premiere of the video. Uh, is Jabal Makal, the real Mount Sinai. And what a great time that was. Thank you for any of you who could join us for that YouTube premiere on Monday. It was great just to join you in the live chat and to have the other three fellas with me uh, who were with me on that trip. We all went together to take a look at it. And uh, man, you should uh, take a look at that video if you haven't seen it already. Okay, next question comes from Lucho, who asks, hi from Florida. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 11, it says that Asa, or Asa, did good in the eyes of the Lord. Yet, the other verses say that he didn't remove the high places. Can you explain why the verse says that he did good then? Uh, well, Lucho, it's really pretty simple, and thanks for giving those verses. Um, the Bible sometimes speaks of a person's good, of a person's righteousness, in relative terms. Look, I, I could say, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, uh, it says that Asa did good in the eyes of the Lord. And, and I could say, listen, the Bible says that no man is good and all have sinned and fall short of the glory. How can it say that he did any good? No, 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 no. Because sometimes the Bible talks about these things in an absolute sense. 
That's like comparing to God. And then sometimes it talks about goodness or righteousness in a relative sense, that is, comparing to man, comparing to other people. And here, Asa is simply compared to other peoples, particularly other kings of Judah. And compared to other kings, he did good. Matter of fact, verse 14 of 1 Kings chapter 15 says this, the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. So could he have reformed more? Could he have done more? Yes, he could have. But what he did was good and it was seen by God and honored before the Lord. So I hope that helps you there, Lucho. Uh, It's really speaking in that relative sense. Listen, Lucho, there were only a few kings of Judah. Man, was Josiah about the only one? I can't remember. But there were only a few kings of Judah who removed the high places. And those guys get a lot of credit because they really obeyed God in some radical ways that other kings of Judah were not willing to do. Thank you, Lucho, for that question. Next one comes from Banjo, who asks, when Christians die, do we receive our resurrected body immediately or is our spirit bodiless until Christ's coming? Banjo, the answer to that question is yes. All right, I'm being a little bit flippant there. Banjo, I don't really know. It could be one or the other. Now, if the Christian receives the resurrection body immediately, it's because of the relation between time and eternity. Because as the Bible explains it, the resurrection of all the righteous, their receiving of their resurrection bodies is still in the future. Paul talked about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, and he put that as a future event, and uh, I certainly believe that on God's calendar, so to speak, it's still a future event. So, from a earthly perspective, that day is still future, even for a wonderful saint in the Lord who died uh, 500 years ago. Now, this is what I want you to understand. However, we don't know exactly how this time-bound world interacts with eternity. Maybe, and I'm just throwing this out there. I, I've got no, no, I'm just throwing something out there. Maybe when somebody passes from this world to heaven, it is the resurrection for them immediately. <laughs> it is that time. And to what for us seems future, for them passing from time to eternity, it's the immediate now. That's a possibility. Or it could be the other thing that you suggested, that uh, they have some kind of temporary body or they have a uh, bodiless spiritual existence with God right now in heaven before the resurrection. I really can't say which is... uh, which has a better case for it. I, I slightly favor the, if you could call it, immediate resurrection thing. And, and not that the resurrection is immediate for us here. No, on earth, it's still in the future. But I just am supposing or conjecturing that it could be different for those who are in heaven now. 
Right, next question comes from Carmel, who asks, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, about widows washing the feet of saints, does it mean to serve the saints or was Paul intending literal washing? Hey, Carmel, that's a very easy question to ask. No, it just means to serve the saints, but to serve the saints humbly. It's not just to serve them, but to serve them with the kind of things like washing feet. So if there was a uh, dear old widow in the church who had been such a servant towards other people and really helped them and, again, was just a beautiful servant, but but never happened to wash somebody's feet, uh, Timothy wasn't saying, no, not for you. No, no, no. Again, the, the idea there is just with humble service. So you're exactly right. It really means to serve the saints and to do it in a humble way. Next question comes again from Banjo, who asks, Hi, Pastor David, could you clarify habitual sinning for me? I'm a Christian, but struggle with being tempted and unfortunately giving in to sinful habits more than occasionally. All right, Banjo, I got an answer for you on that. Let me tell you the word I like in your question. I like the word struggle. I'm a Christian, but struggle with being tempted and unfortunately giving into sinful habits more than occasionally. Banjo, it, it sounds to me like you're fighting the battle against sin. And you know what? I think that's what God expects us to do, to fight the battle against sin, relying on him, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, letting the power of the word of God and the spirit of God fill our lives for sure. But where I get concerned for believers is when a claimed or a professed believer makes what I would call a peace treaty with sin, where they just kind of say, you know what? I'm not going to struggle against this anymore. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to give into it. Matter of fact, I'm going to proclaim it. I'm going to defend it. I'm going to be proud of it. That is the professed believer whom I think is in a lot of trouble spiritually. They shouldn't be in that place. They shouldn't be in the place of, um, of, uh, of defending and protecting and proclaiming and being proud of their sin or uh, making endless excuses for their sin. Banjo, I, I think that the passages such as in 1 John, and there's other passages, some of them in the writings of Paul, that warn against... Uh, the salvation for those who are habitual sinners. I think mostly it has to do with the attitude of heart towards the sin. Certainly it has to do with the exercise of sin as well. I'm not trying to eliminate that. But even more so, it has to do with the attitude of heart towards those sins. Banjo, keep struggling. Keep relying on the Lord. Keep fighting. And as you trust in God and walk with him, God will send, God will bring victory. But don't ever give up in that battle for the faith. God bless you, Banjo. Uh, next question comes from Barry, who asks, as a Bible commentator yourself, what is your opinion of Matthew Henry? Do you read his commentary? Well, Barry, let me look at my calendar here, uh, up here. Commentaries I have. I don't think I got Matthew Henry in this particular section. No, I can't see it. M maybe I see him over there. Um, all right, Barry. Barry, this is just between you and me. Hope nobody else is listening. But Barry, 
You ask the question, what do I think about Matthew Henry? Barry, just between you and me, I don't care for Matthew Henry. He's not a commentator that I really get a lot out of. I find Matthew Henry to be way too wordy. Now, part of that was just the style in which they wrote in that day. There was just certain, a certain literary style that was common, that was popular. But Barry, I don't care for it. Now, I, I know there's some real gems in Matthew Henry. I think he's a reliable commentator. I think there's a lot of truth. But just his writing style and his presentation, Barry, I'm being honest, doesn't do a lot for me. So I, I really don't read Matthew Henry. But listen, I understand this that not every commentary connects with every person. So, if my verse-by-verse commentary on the Bible, if it doesn't connect with somebody, if somebody says, well, David, I read your commentary and I don't really care for it all, it didn't really help me, I'm not offended by that. I totally understand that a great commentator like Matthew Henry, he may not just really connect or click with me, Uh, but um, I know he does for a lot of others. But Barry, you're asking me, And again, just between you and me, this doesn't need to go any farther than than our conversation right here. I don't really care that much for Matthew Henry. I don't get a lot out of him. All right, next question comes from Marilyn. Hello, Pastor Guzik from Shreveport, Louisiana. Hi, Marilyn. Glad you tuned in. Do you believe in once saved, always saved? All right, Marilyn, um, I don't care... For that phrasing, once saved, always saved. Uh, I don't care for that phrasing of it at all. Because that phrasing seems to imply that if somebody made at some time in their life some kind of profession of faith, uh, and then if their life was lived uh, the rest of their days in a manner that didn't indicate any real relationship with God whatsoever. Well, don't worry about it. They made a profession of faith one time. Now, look, I I know that lots of people who use that phrase don't mean that by it, but at least to me, that's what it implies. Uh, Marilyn, how about an alternative phrase? How about this? Truly saved, always saved. I don't have a problem with that. Listen, if somebody's really born again by God's spirit, then they're good. Then they will persevere. Then they will stay faithful to the Lord in some way or another, even to the end. I don't doubt that at all. Uh, But I don't care much for the phrase, once saved, always saved. If I were to suggest an alternative phrase, it would be something like this. Um, Truly saved, always saved. How about that? I don't know, Marilyn. Hope that's helpful for you. Think about that one. All right, next question comes from Now I Know. Friends, this is the point in our Q&A when I'm getting a little bit nervous because it's been a while since I've received a question from our moderator, and I know what that means. It means that he's preparing the lightning round. And I know that in just a few minutes on my timeline is going to come up a barrage of questions, our infamous lightning round at the end, where I'm supposed to, there it is, it just pulled up on my thing. So let me answer this one last question, then we'll get to the lightning round. Okay, now I know, ask this question. Hi, sir, in your commentary on Acts chapter 5, you said that although Ananias and Sapphira died because they tried to deceive the congregation and lied to the Holy Spirit and to God, which resulted in their instant death, 
it does not mean that they will not go to heaven. Can you elaborate on this, please? Um, all right, well, now I know. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in describing the conduct that God's people should have at the Lord's Supper, and uh, 1 John chapter 5, I believe it is, where he speaks about the sin leading to death, seems to indicate for us that God may remove believers from the earth, basically taking them to heaven, because they've so compromised or uh, become unuseful in God's great plan. And I think that there's certainly a possibility with Ananias and Sapphira. Um, Again, I base this on what Paul says about uh, those believers who have fallen asleep in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, talking about the Lord's Supper, and about those who have sinned unto death in 1 John chapter 5. To me, those are indications that even if a God disciplines a believer with death, it does not necessarily mean that they aren't saved. It just means that God has basically said, uh, my usefulness for you on this earth is done. Come on home. Uh, Again, these are things that we can't really say for certain. Uh, Can I tell you for sure that Ananias and Sapphira went to heaven? I can't say that for sure. Uh, It could be that through and through they were false believers. That's a possibility. But I think we should also accept at least the possibility that they were genuine believers who were in significant sin. And just as according to the pattern of those who were disgracing the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and who had fallen asleep, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 11. If I'm not, then just correct me on that. Uh, And after the pattern of those who had sinned unto death in 1 John chapter 5, that sometimes God uses the bringing home of his people as a correction, as a discipline. Now, as I say those words, I'm very self-conscious about those words, and I'll explain to you why. Because there are some believers who have been deceived by Satan that they should commit suicide because God no longer has a purpose for them on this earth. Friends, that principle that God may bring home in discipline an erring believer would never, ever, ever justify a believer taking their own life. Never. Listen, if God wanted to bring me home to heaven, he has 10,000 ways to do it that don't involve my participation at all. I don't need to add my hand to that which would be sin. Because even though I don't believe suicide is the unforgivable sin, it is a sin. It's a sin of taking life that belongs to God alone. So again, I hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, Now I know. Okay, here we go. Lightning round. Take another drink. Here we go. Susan, 
Satan rebelled. Why haven't other angels rebelled? Susan, we believe that other angels have rebelled. It says there in Genesis, excuse me, in Revelation, I believe chapter 12, that Satan drew with him one third of the stars of heaven. And so it's believed that one third of the angelic beings joined Satan in his rebellion. Um, Next question, Andrea asks, are never married single women with no children considered to be in the same category as widows? Is the community called on to support them in exactly the same way as widows? Uh, referring to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Andrea, the, question is, the answer to that question is no. Because not every widow was a true widow in Paul's eyes in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, Paul put as a category true widows those who could not support themselves. Uh, they had no family. They had no other resources. And they needed the support of the church. So in the sense that Paul means it in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, it could theoretically include a single childless woman who had never been married, but the key thing is that she's godly, she serves the church, and she has no other means of support. So I wouldn't put every a single woman with no children in that same category, not at all because many of them are fully capable of supporting themselves, uh, as Paul points out there in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, Lynn, can we have days that we don't sin? All right, Lynn, uh, I'm going to answer that question in a very unsatisfying way. Lynn, yes and no. I believe we can have days when we have no conscious sin against God. No conscious way that we disobey him. But here's the thing, especially if we want to take that definition of sin from Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, Lynn, we have never lived a day on this earth that we haven't in some way fallen short of the glory of God. So it really just depends on how big you want to make your definition of sin. If you want to define sin as conscious chosen, rebellion, and disobedience against God, yes, I believe you could have a day free from that kind of sin. But if sin is any way when we fall short of God's perfection, then there's never been a day that we have not sinned. Next question comes from Sue, who asks, a few of us are studying Revelation. I just read chapter four. Can you speak to the open door that John saw? Are there other scriptures speaking of an open door, especially open doors to heaven? Sue, I'm not aware immediately of other scriptures that speak of an open door to heaven. Uh, You will know that in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus makes mention of an open door to the church at Philadelphia. But really, I don't think there's too much spiritualizing that. It's just basically an open entrance, a free entrance, a, a, a welcoming entrance for John into heaven where he had this vision. He didn't have to knock on a door. He didn't have to pry open a door. He didn't have to pick a lock. The door was open to him. Um, okay, so I hope that answers that for you there, Sue. Uh, next question comes from Jesus is my Savior. Should pastors be available for counsel or biblical questions, or are some not gifted to counsel? Well, listen, uh, Jesus is my Savior. I would just simply say, Some pastors are more gifted to counsel than others are, but I don't think you can have a pastor who has no 
gift or ability to counsel. I mean, to be a pastor is to be a shepherd. It's to take care of the flock of God. So I don't, I don't doubt for a moment. I mean, I know this from my own life and ministry experience that some pastors, some people who are called to be pastors are more gifted in counseling, uh, and one on one kind of ministry, what I call counseling than others. Uh, but I think every pastor should be able to counsel and should be able to speak with others uh, as it would fit in the broad picture of his ministry. I mean, if a pastor has responsibility to preach and teach God's word, he's going to need some time to prepare to do that. And if his time is taken up all week long just in counseling so that he can never give attention to that ministry, then something's wrong. But if just should pastors in general be available to counsel? Yes. Should do do all pastors have some kind of gift or calling to counsel? Yes, but certainly some more than others. Uh, Tim, or maybe it's Tim, asks this question. When Satan is cast out of heaven in Revelation, is that referring to during the tribulation or the fall of Satan in the beginning? Uh, Okay, Tim, I believe it's referring to the casting out of Satan during the um, tribulation. Go ahead and look at my commentary there in Revelation chapter 12. And I believe in that section that I speak of the four falls of Satan. Uh, Let me just do a very quick look here. Revelation chapter 12, um, the four falls of Satan, starting at verse 7. Let me look here. Cast out, cast out. Yes. Uh, in my comments on Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, I talk about the four falls of Satan. Uh, something that I think I learned from Donald Gray Barnhouse in his commentary. Uh, so, yes, that would be speaking about his having access uh, to heaven, to being restricted to the earth. So, that's how I would understand that there, Tim. Matt Nord asks... Pastor, any word of advice how I can serve the Lord by serving my family? I'm a housewife, my unbeliever husband, and small kids. Nothing feels like it's enough. It's frustrating why the world thinks I'm a loser. Well, dear sister, you're not a loser. You're doing the Lord's work. You're doing something that nobody on earth can do, and that is care for your family the way God has called you to do. Look, I I don't know what it is that's frustrating to you in your sort of calling as a homemaker. I I could imagine many things. Uh, Maybe it's things having to do with uh, taking care of the kids and you don't feel you're as uh, gifted in that as you'd like to be. Maybe it has to do with things around the house. Maybe it has to do just with uh, the, the ability to teach and train your children, whatever it is. I know it's easy to say or think that other people are better at these things, but Nobody's better at really ministering to your children in your family like you. You have a precious and important calling before the Lord. You are serving the Lord. And I will say this, even though I understand that right now it feels overwhelming, that's not going to last. Your kids are going to grow up and you're going to look back and feel 
The time went so fast. I know it's not going fast now. I know it seems like everything's in slow motion. Everything takes forever. But it's amazing. Once you get on the other side of it, you'll look back and go, that happened so quickly. Now is the time that you have with those children that is never going to come again. Be encouraged. Let the Lord strengthen you. Redouble your heart and your efforts and, and let God continue to use you in the unique ministry that you alone have. Uh, you know what, Matt Nord, I don't mind agreeing with you that probably a lot of people in the world think you are a loser. Who cares? Let them think that. The world's wrong about a lot of things. Let God be true and every man a liar. What you're doing is kingdom work and is glorious before the Lord. All right, let me get on the last two questions here. Carrie asks, should I worry about my dependency on sleeping pills? Is this a sin? I have insomnia and have taken them for over 20 years. Uh, Carrie, uh, listen, talk to your doctor about it. If your doctor's not worried about it, then I wouldn't be worried about it. But uh, if your doctor is worried about it, if you're hiding things from your doctor, then maybe you need to be concerned about that. But simply talk to your doctor about it. Uh, I think that he would have wisdom for you on this. Um, you know, sometimes it's difficult for us to perceive such things within ourselves. It's good for us to get an outside opinion. All right, last question from the lightning round. Whew, moderator brutal on me today. Comes from JA83. Question, is cessationism unbiblical? I came out of a charismatic church. It mostly clashed with my discernment my whole life. I'm unsure with modern, biblical, unintelligible tongues. Okay, J.A., you're asking me this question. As you know, there's difference of opinion within the Christian world in this. But because you're asking me, I'm going to give you my answer. I believe that cessationism is unbiblical. I believe that the Bible teaches the continuing place of the gifts of the Spirit in the life of the believer and congregational life today. However, I do not believe that the exercise of such gifts should be made the center of congregational life. The center of congregational life should be the worship of God, the preaching of His Word, public prayer, and the fellowship of the saints. Those are the things that should be the center of congregational life not the exercise of gifts such as prophecy or tongues or otherwise. I think this is a biblical and a mature way to approach it. Now, you say, unsure with modern, unbiblical, unintelligible tongues. Well, listen, J.A., I would thoroughly agree with you that there are some people who babble and call it tongues. Yes, absolutely true. It's not right. They shouldn't do that. But just because a tongue is unintelligible doesn't mean that it's not from God. The Bible clearly says that when someone speaks in an unknown tongue, it is unintelligible to the people around them and cannot be understood without supernatural interpretation. So yes, unbiblical tongues, nobody wants that. And there are people who fake the gift of tongues with babbling on and this and that. But unintelligible should not be made the measure for the validity of the gift of tongues. Because the Bible very clearly says that tongues will be unintelligible, except supernaturally interpreted by another gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, I would just say, I believe, and again, you're asking me this question, cessationism is unbiblical, 
Um, I understand there's so much charismatic excess and stupidity and goofiness out there. I get why people are um, cessationists. I get that instinct. Uh, But I just don't think that's what the Bible teaches. All right. Hope that's helpful for you, J.A. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me. We're going to have our Q&A next week. Hopefully, I'll be with you from Brazil. If not, probably not, then uh, I'll have somebody step in for me and you just come and bring them your questions. I want to thank our moderator. I want to thank uh, everybody for tuning in. Hey, later on in this month, we got a couple things very special. First of all, later on this month, we're going to launch our Enduring Word Matching Funds campaign for the summer. That's always exciting for us. And then secondly, on June 22nd, we're going to have a kids Q&A. If you're interested in that, contact us, and uh, we would love to have you submit a video question from your son or daughter, from your grandson or daughter. We want to run a kids Q&A on June 22nd, and we would love you to submit. We'd love your son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter or niece or nephew, whatever it is, to have their question on video there uh, on June 22nd, and I'll do my best to answer that question. Uh, Join us then. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks to our moderator. God bless you. We'll see you again. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.